Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. Join us this Sunday at one of our four campuses. Call times are at 9 and 11 a.m. at our Somerville and Remount campuses, 10 a.m. at our North Charleston campus, and 11 a.m. at our Monk's Corner campus. We hope you enjoy this message from our guest speaker. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit faithishere.org. Now, today we're blessed to have Rick Allen with us. Uh, Rick has shared before here. Rick is now the National Light for the Lost Director for the Assemblies of God. He has a pulse on what God is doing literally all around the world, and our participation in Light for the Lost helps send that gospel everywhere. I want to give Rick Allen a warm welcome as he comes now to bring the Word of God to us today. God bless you. Thank you, Pastor. God bless you. Wow, aren't you glad to be here today? You're in the middle of game plan, and for those of you who are guests here today, thank you for being here. The church is going through the game plan of life, and what's the game plan for faith assembly? Everyone has a game plan. You have a game plan, your marriage has a game plan, your children have a game plan. Their game plan is to get all your money. That's their game plan, and they're working hard at it. I can remember when we used to buy tennis shoes, Chuck Converse, remember those bad boys? $19.99, and you thought that my dad was going to have to rob the National Bank to get the money. My son walks up to me and says, Dad, I really like to have a pair of Michael Jordans. Sometimes I wish Michael had never been born. (laughs) Okay, son, let's go get them. Oh, Dad, they're on sale, only $249. Excuse me? That's a car payment. Here's a Hot Wheel. Have fun. (laughs) Game plans. This church has a game plan. May I share with you, when I walked in this morning, to see those ushers and greeters and people at the door saying hi, it is so great to walk into a building and figure out who knows what's going on around here. Because I have been at some place. Have you ever went to a hospital And you don't know where you're going, you don't know what you're doing, you don't know who to ask to, and the person at the information counter looks like they're ready to kill you. And you think, I'll just gamble. It's got to be on the third floor. It's great to see the connection, to see the vibrancy of life. Part of the game plan for faith, for those of you who haven't been here the last couple weeks, is to encounter Now, we believe that encountering God and encountering each other is a vital part to making us all that God wants us to be. Last week, we talked about equip. That if we're not equipped to do what needs to be done, we'll never get done what needs to be done. That we've got to be prepared with resources and facilitation and understanding that God has a divine purpose in my life. And that if I can't find those tools to help me grow to be what God wants me to be, what God has placed in me to flourish and become, I'll never be that. I'll always be intimidated. Today we're going to talk about evangelism. And then next week you're going to talk about the embracement of the Spirit and how it all connects for this family of faith. That's the game plan. That is the game plan. Now, you may not realize, but uh, in high school, I was a a starting quarterback. Now, as you're looking at me now going, man, you can tell that by the way he's shaped up there today. 
I had him picked for quarterback the moment he walked up. When I was in high school, I was so skinny, I only had one stripe in my pajamas. Some of you will get that on the way home. And every week, we would go through game plans and game films of the opposing team. We would get on the road, go on the bus. We would go ride. We would study it out. We had a series of plays that we were going to run right off the bat. The first 20 plays, they were scripted. We knew where we were going. And then when we found out how the defense was going to flex, we would modify the game plan for the rest of the game. Too many people, when it comes to evangelism, they believe that the success is in what you the people that you can share Christ with that becomes Christians. And when you share your faith a couple times and no one gets saved, you think, well, God didn't, call, God didn't call me to share my faith. When the truth is known, success is not in the conversions. Success is in the conversations. Success in you just sharing your story opens up a door for the Holy Spirit to do whatever he wants to do and the timing that needs to be done according to the heart that's receiving your story. See, stories are important. I can remember when I was growing up, we did not live in a Christian home. And because we weren't in a Christian home, no one ever shared the Word of God with me. I was given one Bible, and I fell on it next to a trash can when I was a seventh grader. And when I took it home, my dad saw me reading it, tore the Bible up, and grounded me for 30 days for reading God's Word. The reason was that my father had been in a very religious family, and when he was five years old, his mother put him in an orphanage, and she said it was God's will. So my dad has a problem with God. And so I have to work through this game plan that when I find Christ at 19, my family begins to start questioning the values. My mother is from Madrid, Spain. She's She's a Catholic. We were Catholicistic to our core. That means we're CEOs. You know what a Catholic CEO is? They go to church twice a year, Christmas, Easter only. That means CEO. You got to hit that confessional twice a year just to be safe. And whenever I went to confessional, I always added one lie because I wasn't telling the priest everything. And so with that, we all have a game plan. See, you cannot share your faith with someone else if you're not experiencing the truth of the faith in your life. If you don't understand the truth of that faith, it's just like holding this football and not throwing it anywhere. We all have a game plan. And this church has a tremendous game plan for life. The life of your life, the life of your family, the life of this church and your life in eternity. And so as you walk through this series of messages that pastor's unpacking, capture what it's going to do, not just for our church, but how does that affect me? How does that change me? How does that give me the courage to share a story? How does that give me the the courage to stand firm in my faith? It's extremely important. Every day, you live in a discovery, a discussion, or a destiny of your life. Every day you live, you're either going to discover something, you're going to discuss something, or you're going to find a destiny moment. 
And we never know, just like Lauren shared, man, I I just wish I could hear more about what she's about to do in Egypt. She's going into a very, very uh, politically charged, spiritually sensitive area of the world. In February, I'll be in Africa with another Live Dead team for 10 days in the Sudan and in uh, Ethiopia. And so I am looking forward to that. But people are desperately hungry for someone to come tell the story. Come tell the story. Now, in destiny, we all have destinies. How many remember Tuesday, September 11th, 2001? How many remember where you were that Tuesday morning? Raise your hand. How many of you remember what you felt when you watched the second plane? How many of you were amazed that the federal government could land a thousand planes in three hours? How many of you remember what it was like when President Bush came on TV that night and shared what was happening in our country? How many of you have been to the memorial yet? I've had the privilege of being at the memorial. It's moving. Have you been to Oklahoma City and see the memorial in Oklahoma City? It's sacred ground. That's what they call it, sacred ground. Every step you take is ordered of God. Every step you take is either a discovery to introduce someone to Christ through your life, discuss how Christ can change your life, or be destined to help someone find Christ. That's what your life's about. Now, I do remember another event, and I'd like to share it with you. John F. Kennedy. On May 25th, 1961, he's at Rice University. It is the second time in 15 months he will give this speech. The first time he gave it before Congress, and nobody responds. So he figures he's going to take it to the people because he's got to get this dream out of his heart into reality so it can happen. And on May 25, 1961, John F. Kennedy reads these these words. Let me share with you a part of them. My fellow citizens... We shall send to the moon 240,000 miles away from this, from this control station in Houston a giant rocket ship, more than 300 feet tall, the length of a football field, made of new metal alloys, some of which have not yet been invented, capable of standing heat and stresses several times more than have ever been experienced, fitted together with the precision better than the finest watch, carrying all the equipment needed for propulsion, guidance, control, communications, food, survival on an untried mission to an unknown celestial body, then return it safely to Earth, re-ending the atmosphere at a speed of over 25,000 miles an hour, causing heat about half of that of the temperature of the sun, and do all that, and do it right, and do it first, before the end of this decade. Then he says these words. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do other things, not because they're easy, but because they're hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one we're willing to accept, one we're unwilling to postpone, 
and one we intend to win. As I'm thinking about that, watching Pastor on that video, the interesting thing about the road trip, there was nobody on the bus but him. That's how John F. Kennedy felt. He was coaching on the school bus at Rice University, right outside of Houston Space Center, knowing that he was talking to an empty bus. But he knew where there's vision, people flourish. Where there's no vision, people perish. So when pastor's on that bus speaking to that camera, knowing that he's talking about taking a team on a road trip and there's no one there, he's envisioning the right players being on the bus, going to the right game to win the vital game. And the reason there was no one on the bus is because you weren't available for the taping. You're the players on the bus. And the game's the game of life. And the trophy is eternal life versus eternal damnation. It's a winner-take-all game. See, from the time John F. Kennedy made his first steps, small steps of speaking about this dream to putting a man on the moon... On July 20th, 1969, now how many remember where you were the night that Neil Armstrong touched the moon? Oh, I remember. My dad put me in front of a Zenith TV set, black and white TV set the size of a casket. This thing had a record player in it. It had a Starbucks, and they weren't even invented yet. It had that pair of Chuck Converse tennis shoes in it. It was a massive thing. How many know what I'm talking about? And my mother felt that it was, a, it was a picture case. So we always had all the pictures up. So if you ever wanted to play a record, you had to move 40 pictures to play the record. And then if you didn't put the pictures back right, mm, that Spanish woman would come unglued. And I sat there on that TV set. You teenagers, you make me sick. Y'all got 150 channels on TV. And y'all say you have got nothing to watch. You got an iPod with 1,000 songs, and I can't find my favorite song. Can I have an iTunes card? Back when I was growing up, we had three channels. Watch this, kids. ABC, NBC, tell them the third. Thank you very much. That's what I had. Dear God, when it came out that we were getting a four-channel PBS, we were all excited until we found out it was a bunch of puppets. Back then, my dad had a remote control. You all, women, you know about your husband. The funniest thing to do, I do it, is when the remote control goes bad. You know what we do? We lean forward, hoping we can get a little bit of juice out of that back. Come on, baby, one more time. Come on, come on, baby. And if that don't work, we take the back off, spinning it, thinking we'll create enough energy in that battery to make it work. 
And then if that don't work, like us men are geniuses, we take it out and lick it. <laughs> Tastes right, got to work. And then if that doesn't work, you don't get out of your recliner. You don't call for new batteries. You just wait for someone to walk by the TV so they can change the channel. Well, my dad had a channel changer. It was called Rip. And we'd go change that channel. 4711, 4711, 4711. And on that night, I watched Neil Armstrong as he came out of that lunar landing. And he started down those steps. The first step, there's three steps before he hits the ground. Second step, he gets on that third step and he freezes. And if you watch the video, he just stops. And he stops because he's got a problem. And the problem is simply this. For the last four and a half months, they have been telling Neil what he needs to say when he steps on the moon. They've been making him practice this line. And he's been working on the line, and he's been practicing the line, and he's got it down because it's going to go down in in the archives of history. These words will forever be said. And this is what they've been telling him. One small step for a man, one giant step for mankind. And he got it until he got to the last step, and he got so nervous about the moon, he forgot the statement. And he's standing on that step, turning around. You know how it is when your wife's asking you where you've been when you know you've been at McDonald's to get that Big Mac you're not supposed to eat because you're on a diet? You know what I'm talking about. And he, and he gets it. And he jumps on the moon. And he goes, one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. He said it wrong. That's not what he had been practicing. He had been practicing one small step for a man, the article A, a man, one giant leap for mankind. He gets on the moon, and he left that article A out, and he goes, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And can I tell you, I've been ticked off ever since when I found that out. If you're not going to do it right, then don't do it at all. That's how we treat our our salvation. That's how we treat our witness. If I can't do it perfect, I better not share. Go for it. I would rather you get on the field and get tackled and sit on the bench and, and just say, you know, my uniform's clean. I don't have to wash it till next week. Looking pretty doesn't score a touchdown. The greatest impact you're going to have today will not be the faith promise you make to reach the people around the world. It'll be the commitment you make to yourself to share your faith with your friends. See, why do we want to do this? Why do we want to share Christ around the world? Why does Lauren want to go to Egypt? Why do we want to go down to Nicaragua? Why do we want to go around the world and share Christ? Because God told us to. See, God commanded us to go. In Matthew 28, 19, he said, Go and make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you always. 
Second, we choose to go because there's still over 6,800 unreached people groups in the world. Let me say that again. Over 6,800 people groups have never heard the name of Christ. Over 300 million people in these 6,800 people groups, in their concentrated tribes, not talking about their outreaches, have never been told the name of Christ. That is a popu- little bit less than the population of the United States. The United States is the third largest unreached people group in the world. The only difference is we've all heard. And these 6,800 people group need to know. I have a missionary friend that was in Laos. And, and when he was there, he was sharing Christ a few years ago. And he shared Christ with a little woman. And she, after she received Christ, she came back to him and he said, Mr., I need to ask you a question. Do you believe Jesus really loved me so much that he died for me so I could be saved like you told me I've been saved? And he goes, yes. And she goes, if this Jesus is so important, what took you so long to get to me? In a few seconds, we're going to watch a video of a traumatic story with a tremendous ending of how God's Word can bring hope to hopeless situations. Let's watch the screens. In San Diego, Dom Nguyen composes an email to her sister, Hua, who lives in Vietnam. She's saying goodbye. Dom intends to commit suicide by a sleeping pill overdose. Her life has spiraled out of control into utter darkness. She can't live with the pain anymore. What darkness brought her to such a place? Dom and her husband, Liam, leave Vietnam in 1992 and settle in San Diego, California. Over the next 13 years, they build several thriving businesses and invest in 10 properties. They also raise four children. But for Dom, a family, the American dream, freedom, and riches bring no inner peace or joy. She frequently visits the Buddhist temple to leave offerings and pray for peace and blessing. But in her heart, where happiness and joy should be, there is only a growing darkness. And then, news which every mother dreads. Dom's only son, 22-year-old Dong, has terminal cancer. As the family reels in shock, more calamity comes. The businesses fail, the investments lose value, and Dom and Lim's marriage begins to fracture. In 2008, Dong dies. Grieving, bankrupt, hopeless, and in darkness, Dom goes into deep depression. The pain becomes too great to bear, so she says goodbye to her sister Hua in Vietnam and prepares to do the unthinkable. But God has another plan. A Google search in Vietnam will bring life and light into Dom's darkness. Deeply troubled by Dom's email, 
Hua Google searches Mati Vuong, which means loss of hope. Immediately, she finds the Journey Answers website of Network 21-1 and sees Vietnamese pastor Dan Deng's message on hopelessness. Hua quickly calls Dom in San Diego. Perhaps there's still time. Dom answers and listens to her sister. She goes to the Journey Answers site and finds a reason to hope, to live. In the weeks that follow, Dom is led to Jesus Christ through Vietnamese-speaking Network 211 personnel. The darkness melts away. Next comes a light celebration. Dom decides to follow the light, Jesus Christ. She leads her husband, daughters, and other family members to Christ. In 2012, she travels to Vietnam to share her story. Her sister Hua also receives the light. The entire family is saved. Today, the Nguyen's live in Fort Worth, Texas, where Dom works as a Vietnamese language 121 connector for Network 211. Each month, she spends about 1,000 minutes on the phone sharing the light with other Vietnamese speakers all over the world. She's an international missionary. A simple Google search in Vietnam results in an entire family hearing the gospel in America. Today, a life that was almost stamped out is a light for many around the world. That's worth celebrating. As the National Director of Life for Lost, it's a joy that Every year we've started producing videos like this to share what God is doing around the world through the different agencies and ministries that assist missionaries. Life for Lost, we're, we're responsible for handing out the evangelism literature to our missionaries around the world and throughout the United States, whether it's in print, digital format, video format, visual format. Speed the Light, where we're having this uh, uh, event coming up next week, they help missionaries with media equipment, vehicles and sound systems and things that can help project the message. And then BGMC, Boys and Girls Missionary Challenge, which our little kids do, they just raise money for missionaries to help missionaries with whatever their projects are. Between Life for Law, Speed the Light, and BGMC, every year we raise between 23 and $25 million on top of what the mission's doing, on top of what you're doing to help missionaries go there. Your faith promises today are not for missionary, for BGMC, Speed of Light, or Light for Lost. What we're going to do today is to equip missionaries, to get missionaries to the field, to help with the missionary projects, to help as this church is continuing to reach out to touch and assist the 6,800 unreached people groups. That's a tremendous story, and that's the true people. That was them. That was not actors. That's their real lives. So we are seeing God do phenomenal things. God's moving around the world, and every day we get these stories. In fact, you saw Dave Reaver. For some of you who know Dave, he'll be in my office Wednesday. Dave and Dan Dang and myself are planning a trip to go to Vietnam in August and to go and reach some of the unreached people groups up in the hills of North Vietnam. So we're really excited about that, which was North Vietnam. However, today... I want to take you to Myanmar for a few moments. I want to share with you a couple things about what's happening and why we so desperately need partnerships and friends like you 
that believe in missions, believe in the game plan of faith, to believe in that evangelism piece. Now, Myanmar uh, was for, formerly Burma. There's 54 million people in Burma. The healthcare system is rated the second worst healthcare system in the world. Mortality rates for children are among the worst in the world. 40% of the people in Myanmar have a drug-resistant tuberculosis in their life, in their body. According to the United Nations, human right abuses affect one-thirds of the households in Burma. There are 36 prisons in Burma, and of them, 20 detained political prisoners, many of them in prison for their faith in Christ. Christians are not allowed to attend school in Burma. If their children want to go to, to school, they have to convert to Buddhism. Buddhist is one of the worst abusers. Uh, I'm sorry, Burma is one of the worst abusers of women's rights in the world. Military rape is systematically used in Burma as a weapon of the military regime for cleansing ethnic areas, including Christian pockets. These rapes are often gang rapes, and they are accompanied by torture, murder, mutilation, and, dis- and display of bodies of, to the targeted communities. The Chin, the Nagan, the Chain, the Chan, the Karan. Karini people, all with sizable Christian communities, have been the primary target for over a decade. It is illegal for Christians to meet together in groups of more than five people without a government permit, which the government will not grant. It's illegal to build a church in Burma. Children from Christian families are often kidnapped and taken to Buddhist monasteries for brainwashing and retraining. Any army The army offers Buddhist soldiers 6,000 kayats, which is approximately $1,000 worth of rice, to marry a Christian woman and try to dilute their Christian faith to become uh, a Buddhist. Christians are being arrested at an alarming rate and thrown in jail. It's a terrible country with a lot of pain and a lot of anguish. Nathan, Christine Faro is out at the Remount campus. They're down in Nicaragua, and they're trying to reach people left and right down there. Lauren wants to go to Egypt. I'm going around the world. People are desperately looking for Christ. The Holy Spirit is moving people at an alarming rate to ask questions of Christianity, just as Lauren's story shared this morning. A few months ago, the Burmese government put out a document called The Program to Destroy Christian Religion in Burma. And there were 17 points in this document. I want to share a few of them with you. Number one, there shall be no home where Christian religion is practiced. Number two, no home will accept any preaching about Jesus. The fourth one was, the Christian concept of no other God but me is narrow-minded and should not be accepted. Point five, there shall be no Christian preaching evangelism or on an organized basis. Point six, Take care as the Christian religion is very gentle. Identify and utilize their weaknesses. 
Point seven, if anyone discovers Christians evangelizing in the countryside, they are to report it to the authorities and those caught evangelizing will be put in prison. Point eight, Christians believe Christ died on the cross and gives salvation. This is untrue and should be contradicted. Point ten, Buddhists shall study. Now, I love this one. This one just, please. Point ten. Buddhists should study the Christian Bible so they can contradict those parts which are untrue and be able to resist the Christian message. Sounds like that was what was happening in Egypt. Ten men were reading. They didn't understand. They needed someone to explain. (coughs) Excuse me. Point 12. In the Christian religion, God only loves the 12 tribes of Israel and doesn't love all the people in the rest of the world. Point 13, I love this one. Buddhists love everybody, not just the 12 tribes of Israel. The Christian religion does not love everyone, and this should be pointed out. Point 16 is worth its weight in gold. This is a legal document. Study the Holy Spirit. That's what they write. They tell Buddhists, study the Holy Spirit and show Christians they have a wrong understanding. Yes, please do. <coughs> we just finished producing three million fire Bibles for, the, for China. Gave them to, to, to the, the churches in China. Only to find out that we got a problem. They started counterfeit printing the Bibles so they could sell them and make their own profit. And we sent three million, they printed eight million. Someone say, thank you. You printed 8 million Bibles illegally to make money, and you've got now 8 more million copies of God's Word, a total of 11 million in China for people to find faith. Would you like to steal another Bible? I got all kinds of them. Number 17, Christians' beliefs have to be contradicted in all circumstances. As I work around the world and I talk to missionaries every week and I hear what's happening around the world, one of the startling things I found out in the first few months is that more Christians are martyred for the cause of Christ today than any time in the history of the world. But media does not communicate the martyrdom. We just had a church in Africa where over 400 women and children were lined up on a Sunday morning and shot dead and stacked up at the front door of the church. Just happened. But as I've been sharing with you all morning, there's a scam plan for you. When I became a missionary in 1999, I went to work for a, a group called the Book of Hope. Book of Hope is a book that is given out to teenagers at high school and junior high school campuses. It takes the four Gospels and it writes it like a story. And then in the front of the book, there's, we deal with the nine felt needs of, of life. There's nine needs we all have an acquirement for. There are nine fruit of the Spirit, nine virtues of the Spirit and Beatitudes, and, and nine primary gifts to counteract every human emotion, mental position, and physical ailment. I went to my house, my 
Dad, it was 71 years old. This is in 2000. And I went to the house, and I started telling Dad what I was doing. He still wasn't a believer. And my dad said, hey, son, uh, you have one of those Bibles that you're doing, uh, passing out? And I said, yeah. And he goes, uh, let me buy one of those Bibles from you. And I said, Dad, I, I, these Bibles aren't for sale. People around the United States give to missions. They give in mission offerings so we can just give the Bibles away. So you can't buy a book, but I can give you a book. And he goes, okay, then let me have a book. So I gave him a book, and he set it right next to that recliner with that remote sitting right next to it because I had watched him many times spin those batteries. And he sat it there and put a Bud Light right on top of it. And I thought, praise God, the Bible's a beer coaster. But I didn't say anything. I just kind of let it go. You know, it reminds me of the story of the preacher in San Francisco. He's preaching on the corner, and this skinny guy comes up with long hair, dope freak. And he starts watching this preacher, and the preacher stops and says, young man, can I pray for you? And he goes, no, don't need prayer. He goes, would you like my Bible? He goes, no, I don't, want you. I don't need you to read my Bible. He said, but I do want your Bible. He goes, why would you want my Bible? He said, you know, those pages are th- so thin, I could tear them out, roll marijuana up, and smoke. Now, that might upset you, but that preacher said, you know what, son, you got a deal, but here's the deal. Before you smoke the page, you got to read the page. A few months later goes by, this guy walks up in a nice suit, standing there in front of the, pa- the preacher, and the preacher's watching him. The preacher stops and says, can I pray for you? He goes, no, not today. He goes, well, would you like to know Jesus? He goes, no, I found him. And he goes, uh, do I know you? He goes, yeah, you remember a few months ago, the guy came up here and you gave him a Bible and you told him he had to smoke the page before he, he had to read the page before he smoked the page? He goes, yeah, he says, I'm the guy. He goes, what happened? He goes, it's very simple. I smoked Matthew. I smoked Mark. I smoked Luke. And John smoked me. So I'm thinking about this, and I'm going, okay, it can happen to San Francisco, it can happen to San Diego, they both got sand in it, it can't work, it'll work. So I left it. A few weeks go by, and my 71-year-old father is reading a Bible that is written for teenagers, and he writes me this email. Now, you must understand, my father has bought a computer not to do email, He bought a computer not to surf the internet. He's bought a computer not for Word document or accounting. My father has bought a computer because it will electric shuffle the solitaire games. (laughs) Click deal. Here we go. And so my father is learning how to use this computer, and he sends me an email. He writes this email at 3.09 a.m. He has been reading the Book of Hope now for some weeks, and he writes me this email. I haven't heard from you in a few days. I hope everything's going good. I've been reading the Book of Hope. It's very nice. Every teenager should have a copy to read. It's put together with a lot of work, but it's an easy read. I like the dictionary and the What is Book of Hope section. It's going to take me a little while to read all of this. The only thing I don't like is the coloring. 
In some places, it's hard for an old man to read the words because the words and the colors blend together too well. Good job in putting it together. And then my father will pen eight words, eight words that will forever change my life. And every day, I live with these eight words. And every time I talk to someone, whether it's someone at the hotel or on an airplane, eight words stay in my head. I would like to share with you the eight words. I hope to meet this man one day. Those eight words, those eight words are what every person, including you, came to a point when you were trying to remember whether or not you wanted to live for Christ or not. And you came to the point that you wanted to meet Jesus to see if the stories were true. And only did you find out they weren't only true, the Spirit exceeded the print through the experiences of your life in Him. And for two years, I would talk to my dad, 1 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the afternoon when my mom was buying groceries. We would talk for almost two years. And in 2002... Just like John F. Kennedy said, before the end of the decade, the goal of my life is before I take my final breath, I want to see my family one for Christ. In 2002, my father writes me an email on August 3rd at 8.30 at night. He goes, I received your email. This computer is two steps from the window. This is a true story, what I'm about to say. My, the computer has told my dad to reboot, and he is mad because I didn't tell him where the shoes were. <laughs> and sometimes I don't fall far from the tree. Sometimes I'm like, I don't get it. I am snowed. And he says, thank God that now I'm a Christian or the wall would be dark blue. Love, Dad. And I pick up the phone and I call my dad. And I said, Dad, what do you mean you're a Christian? He goes, well, son, in that book it says if you want to make next step of hopes, there's three things you need to do. You've got to believe, accept, believe, and confess. I did those. I confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, Rick. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with it. I believe that really, from when my mother put me in an orphanage when, she was, when I was five years old, and I've held this for 65 years, I really feel set free from it. Son, what am I supposed to do? And I said, Dad, I'm going to buy a plane ticket, and I'm going to come out, and we're going to sit down and talk. And I flew out three days later. I am 44 years old at the time. When I drive up in my driveway, I see something I've never seen. I see my father standing in the driveway. It was always my mom. This time it's my dad. And when I get out of the car, my father walks to me as a prodigal father 
finding his righteous son, the reversal of Luke 15. And he hugs my neck, and two things will happen. He will kiss me on the cheek. It will be the first time my father has ever kissed me. And then my father will whisper in my ear, I really do love you. And it is the first time in my life that my dad tells me he loves me. There's discovery days. There's discussion days. There's destiny days. And whether it is in Vietnam, Myanmar, Egypt, Nicaragua, or one of your family members, every time there's a confession of faith, the angels in heaven rejoice. The name is written into the book, and there is an eternal life that's been there. So here's the game plan for today. Here's the game book. In your bulletin this morning, you were given a faith promise. There's a little card that's got the game plan, and on the back of it, it says your name, your address, print your name and your address, and whether you're going to give a a weekly faith promise or a monthly faith promise. Now, let me share something with you about this, and this is very important. This is above your tithe. This is above your commitments that you've got. A faith promise says, I'm going to take a step of faith and I'm going to reach out to do something that needs to be done. And as JFK said it, with metals that have not yet been invented. I am going to trust God that I am going to, by faith, for the missions game plan of this church, for the evangelism arm of the game plan, I am going to, by faith, plant a seed and believe that God, through his resources and through his grace and mercy, will bring that to me, and what he gives to me, I'll flow through me. See, faith promises are fun. Because here's what I know. 13 seconds after we all get to heaven, you will look at everyone who ever asked you to give anything to missions, and you'll look at us and go... Thank you. This morning, you get to help the ministries that you're connected to, the ministries you will connect to, to reach people you'll never see in the 6,800 people groups. And at the same time, we're going to pray that God will help you through different resources Allow the people, your loved ones, to find Christ. Because I must confess, August 3rd, 2002, I stood in the driveway and my dad saw something that he hadn't seen since he had beat me the last time. He saw me cry. And I need to thank you. Because it's through friends like you who give to missions that we were able to print the books that I was able to give to my dad for him to find Christ through your gifts. It went full circle in my life. I'm eternally grateful every dime that you'll give the missions. 
I'm so thankful that you'll take that step of faith. And if you're going to write 100, you go, you know what? I think I'm going to do 200 and see what God can do. Can I trust that I can expand God in my horizons or I'm going to make God work through my little box? Whatever you're about to do, in just a few moments, pastor's going to come up here and he's going to seal it with a blessing and he's going to talk to you about what's going to happen today. But here's what I want you to know. I may not look like a quarterback, but inside I'm still that boy. I may not be able to throw a touchdown pass, but I still love football. And on September 5th, 1975, when Jesus changed my life, I promised I would do everything I could to reach others for him. This is your day of destiny. The gift you're going to give will change eternally the life of someone who will be touched. Let's pray as pastor comes up. Father, in the next few moments, pastor is going to take us into the realms of the supernatural. We thank you for the Cuba trip we'll take in a few weeks where some of us will get to go touch it, see it. rest of us, Lord, we're just planting seed because we know that the gracious gift of eternal life that you gave us all should have. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would just give us an opportunity to plant our resources into your harvest field to see the harvest come. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this weekly podcast. Check out faithishere.org for podcasts and videos of our previous messages.